welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Today, I'm joined by Matt Eggers, a man with more than 20 years experience in clean energy, or what we might now refer to as climate tech. He is an investor at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which you may know is a coalition of private investors established in 2015 by Bill Gates. Matt is a person who can approach the topic of climate tech and innovation from a range of perspectives. He has worked on the operational side of climate tech and also on the sales side, trying to inspire and educate people to buy into forms of clean energy. So whether we're talking about his work in solar or with electric vehicles or his current focus, which is in investing in clean energy businesses, Matt brings a distinctive perspective on the opportunities we have when it comes to climate action. My life and Matt's have intersected in travel. He was on the board of Ecology Project International, which I connected with through the Adventure Travel Trade Association, and in our appreciation for, I guess you could say, the art scene in San Francisco. I enjoy his sensibility as a fan of science, the arts, music, and climate action. We talk about fuel cells, all the colors of hydrogen, blue, green, and gray, the powers of meditation, dystopian and utopian fiction, technology's proven learning curve, the many co-benefits of solving climate change, and the feeling one gets from solo hiking in Yosemite. Matt grew up on a farm near Nevada, Iowa, and now lives in Northern California. Follow him on Twitter at Eggers Matt for news and opinions on clean tech, climate change, solar PV, smart buildings, electric vehicles, synthetic biology, mindfulness, and occasionally Iowa State and Duke basketball. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Matt Eggers. My pleasure to be here with you, Christina. I'm so, uh, we've been trying to put this conversation together for a long time. You're such a busy man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, it's it's fun to talk with you about it, and uh, I'm not I'm no busier than anyone else. Just uh, maybe I'm just worse at scheduling. Tell us a little bit where. So where are you calling from? What is your? I'm in Santa Fe, and I you're in California. What's it like today? Uh, I'm in the cottage in our backyard in Larkspur, California, about eight miles from the Golden Gate Bridge, and I'm looking at our beautiful magnolia tree that's in bloom. Um, it's a gorgeous day, but it's been a lot of gorgeous days lately, but it's incredibly dry. We are deep in a second year of drought, mm -hmm. which makes me very anxious about the upcoming fire and smoke season mm -hmm. and, uh, and really happy I'm, that I'm doing what I'm doing to try to, um, stop mm -hmm. my church. Right. I, I read something that said the wildfires last year in California released something like. 112 million tons of carbon dioxide. So it's like our forests are potential carbon sources now that we're in this warmed world. That, uh, I, I am generally all about the dream, not the nightmare, but it is pretty significant to start looking at a forest with that kind of mindset. Yeah, it is. I mean, the forest fires are becoming a uh, well, they have been for years in the developing world, but they're becoming a major uh, greenhouse gas challenge for sure. Hmm. So, Matt, clean energy, clean tech, 
this, you know, when, when I, when I met you, I don't think I even knew what clean tech was. Like, I didn't know what that meant in 2010. And I didn't have really a concept of your uh, professional space, but maybe you could, could you share a little bit your sort of perspective on, on the evolution of this category? Because now it seems like everybody understands what this means, or at least knows what the words are and cares. What, like, what would be your, your, your primer on, on clean tech? Yeah, well, even the words have somewhat changed. So clean tech and green tech were the two words often used when I got into this uh, in the mid aughts, like 2005, 2006. Nowadays, I think people use climate tech more often. And, uh, and they also talk about the energy transition. Um, and then, you know, what, what it means to me, so I'm an investor at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and, and we say energy is in the name, but we're really focused on climate, and it's the entire economy. Um, you know, I, sometimes I add the stupid part, right? It's the whole economy, stupid. <laughs> um, because every dollar that is spent, every thing, every service or good that either a consumer anywhere in the world or a business buys has a carbon footprint. Um, that's the fact of life. Uh, and so we need to reduce the carbon footprint of all that stuff, all of it to zero. That's the challenge. When we, in tourism, we also, you know, travel as a category is so encompassing. And it, I often ladder that up into, it just is a, it's like a microcosm of the completely unsustainable system that we're in. And so then it's like, how do we chip away at different chunks? Like within tourism, we th- so tourism is 8%, probably more of global emissions. And that's with an end-to-end view. So flights get all the attention, but ground transport, meals, accommodate, like everything, like you just said, everything that you do when you're at home, you do some version of that when you travel for the most part, um, unless you're like backcountry. But for the most part, that is kind of the challenge. So how, so as you, you must have kind of a, a, a systematic way of thinking about where to invest and where you might get the most leverage. Is that part of how you approach this? It is. Yeah, it is part of how we do. And it is part of how um, we approach this. And, you know, I can describe it for you. But before I do, one thing I want to say is it's important, I think, for people to not get too wrapped up in it. Sometimes I hear people kind mm-hmm. of paralyzed with, well, you know, how do I work on the biggest problem? Like, what's the mm. biggest problem? And I'm like, it's all the problems. So just go mm-hmm. go work on, if you want to work on this field or make an impact, there are so many ways mm-hmm. to do it. So whatever your interest, like take, like take you, Christina, if your interest is travel, mm-hmm. then figure out how to help reduce travel emissions. Mm-hmm. Don't get hung up on it. But mm-hmm. we do, we, it is pretty easy to divide emissions into five main areas, manufacturing, electricity, uh, food, ag, and land use, transportation, and buildings. Um, so that's those are the big sources. The two biggest are manufacturing and electricity um, with uh, agriculture and land use and transportation kind of close behind, and then um, buildings coming in in fifth. 
Uh, and there are different ways to cut this. Like sometimes you'll hear that buildings are, are actually the, the largest source of carbon emissions in the United States. That's true if you count all the electricity as if you move it out of electricity and count it as buildings. So it's really easy to hear different numbers and you feel like, oh, people must be wrong, but it's just it's often how they're characterizing these different um, contributors. That's so, I think one of the things that I feel happens is the statistics. I just gave a presentation yesterday and I was pulling news headlines to sort of make the point that this is overwhelming information overload and conflicting statistics. And all of it gets so tangled up that, you know, even somebody who, who goes bananas and wants to like study and get to the bottom of it feels like, ah, I can't possibly. So I love your message that each just find a chunk where you can get a foothold and take some first steps. That's right. Tell me, so you are from a farm. Aren't you a farm boy? I'm a, I'm a farm boy, indeed. <laughs> what? Let's, let's hear about that. What was life on the farm? Do you feel, I feel in what I know of you, that your um, like to the earth kind of roots upbringing is a part of what you're doing today. Do you, do you see yeah. yourself that way or do you see the farm boy in yourself today? I do. I do. I mean, I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. It was, um, we, we had uh, a few hundred acres of both corn and soybeans, like most Iowa farms. And we had a, a herd of beef cattle, relatively small, 30 or 40. Um, and, you know, we lived on a plot of land. We had a pond on one side and a creek and a forest on the other side. And I grew up hunting and fishing and tromping around outside a lot. And I think my interest in climate came from my feeling of love and connection and appreciation for for the natural world for the animals for the the beauty of the ecological systems you know just the complexity of a simple forest and how how perfect it is it is it's you know it's just evolved to be incredibly complex and perfect in just the way it is and it's it's never felt to me like like that we as humans, like it does for so many people, like that we own that and that we should have any mm. right to determine mm. its fate. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that that's my original approach and feeling about all this is to protect nature. And, you know, now it's becoming an existential crisis for civilization. I don't, I, I disagree with the extinction rebellion. Humans aren't going to go extinct anytime soon from climate change. But civilization as we know it is at incredible risk. Civilization as we know it could go extinct. Mm -hmm. Like we could be reduced to far, far poorer and far, far more primitive than we live today. If we, within a hundred years, if we do not solve climate change. I started reading this book called Wind Up Girl. And it is, uh, I'm in the beginning, but it's somewhat dystopian around. It is exactly a reversal of, you know, they're talking like planes aren't allowed to fly anymore. Everything's been gene hacked. I think this kind of, um, there's like, we need the level of fear and urgency to kind of motivate us. And I think one thing that's happened in the climate conversation is that it hasn't been framed positively. It's like, 
To avoid the worst effects of climate change, we should do X, Y, Z. And if we could frame a positive, if we could say, here's what we're running for. Here's the, that, I think that's, that's what we need. And so I've heard, um, and I like this language lately around um, restoring our climate. We can restore our climate. That feels like something I can work towards versus the other is kind of like, I don't know, it feels gloomy. Yeah. I think it's both. I think I think it's important to point people point out to people that civilization as we know it is factually at risk. Mm-hmm. And it's also important. I say this all the time. I tweet this and I say this to people. We the the co benefits of solving climate change are incredible. The health mm. benefits, the extension of life um, that we'll have when we're not poisoning ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the the feeling that we'll all have, even if you even for people who don't think of them as a tr- think of themselves as tree huggers, they do not feel good living in opposition to nature. I mm-hmm. really believe that's true. Mm-hmm. And we are living in opposition to nature. And you know, if you don't believe that, find me one piece of utopian fiction that doesn't include a flourishing, vibrant natural system. Mm-hmm. Be it movie, book, be it modern, ancient, sci-fi, biblical or otherwise. In a utopian world that humans have created in their stories, there is always, we're always living in a bountiful garden. Mm-hmm. And yet here we sit destroying the bountiful garden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, tell, let's hear a little bit about your, so your professional background is interesting because you've worked in such a range of, of businesses within this general category. Can you, I think it's really helpful for people to kind of, um, cause now of course you're, you know, you're, uh, I don't want to say you've arrived cause we've never arrived, but you have this like very cool job right now. What were the steps kind of up to this job and how do you, did your, did you, did your perspective shift and grow as you moved through your jobs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I got involved in, uh, you know, I guess we'll just call it climate tech um, in 2006. I'd been working in biotech for a long time. That was sort of my goal as a kid, and I loved it. I just felt like I was contributing to saving lives. Um, but the climate was collapsing, or was starting to, and the news was getting worse and worse um, for it. And, and it was becoming more clear that we weren't deciding as a civilization to do enough. Um, this was in like 2004, five, six. Mm. Um, and I just felt like, why would I work in biotech and save people's lives so they can live longer on a, in a civilization that's mm. in our um, Such a philosopher, Matt Eggers. <laughs> okay, so, good. Purpose-driven. So my job one day, I just, had to, I just had to leave it. I couldn't, I was trying to make this transition and I couldn't do it without fully severing ties. So I quit my mm. job at a company called Genentech. And mm. took a few months off, and then I went and just found what felt like a good job. It was at a, a fuel cell company called Bloom Energy, mm-hmm. um, and I was, you know, I was a relatively sort of junior to mid-level position. Um, I want to, Matt. Sorry, I got to go back. This is such yeah. a big deal. You glossed over something so big. You were at Genentech, which is a reputable company, and you had a job. And you're living in San Francisco, 
And it felt so misaligned with your worldview that you were like, I got to get out of here. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. That, that, what did your family say? They, what did people say? <laughs> they thought I was crazy. And many of our, my friends now who are your friends too, uh, thought I was crazy um, and told me I was doing the wrong thing. Genentech at the time had the highest market cap per employee of any publicly traded company in the world. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, it just, it just felt to me like the most, I had to do something that was working on the most important problem in the world. Um, I kind of set out to do that as a kid. I don't know why. Uh, I just did. Um, and, you know, at the time that seemed like healthcare. Um, and then at the time later, it seemed like the way to cure everybody of everything was to keep the planet flourishing. Mm-hmm. This, I, I'm going to let you keep going, but I think this is so significant and wonderful for other people to hear, which is that if you're working at something that doesn't align with how you feel, there are, you can make these breaks. You can, you can, and you should, because once you get into your flow, into your, you know, once you are aligned, you can be much more powerful. And you were, you had graduated from Stanford Business School at that point. Like you were, I feel like it's, I also feel like it's easy to talk about walking off the job, like it's easy for me to talk about walking off the job at the cheese stand in Washington, D.C., because I had nothing to lose walking off that job. But you probably felt at that point with, I don't know, I'm imagining student debt and all that stuff that that, like, yeah. that is such a bold thing. Yeah. It, you know, thank you for saying that. And it is. And and sometimes I forget. You know, I had the, I had the good fortune at the time of I was making good money. I didn't. You know, my most expensive possession at the time was my beat up used car. And my second most was my bike. I didn't have any kids. So, you know, it felt relatively financially, it was uh, a low risk decision. Um, But I got to say, you know, the thing about work is if you don't have some sort of if you're not doing it for some big picture thing that you really believe is intrinsically important and special and valuable for the world, then you end up doing it for money and promotions and power. And those things come and go. And so I found that working in this is, is actually a lot less stressful because no matter what happens with all that other stuff, promotions, career success, or so, so forth, I can rely on I'm making the world a better place. Yeah, like to wake I I I wake up and run to my desk and I have things occur to me in the middle of the night and I need to get out of bed and run to my desk. And that is such a I feel like that um I realize that that is a gift to be able to love what you're working at. Okay, so I that's I love everything you said. There's so I could go on and on on that thread, but I want to go back to the fuel the fuel cell company. So what yeah. happened there? So, that so I and and first also, what is a fuel cell, Matt? I yeah. recently tried to write an Instagram post on this, so I know. But why don't you tell everybody? Yeah, fuel cells are often uh, mistakenly confused for a type of battery. They are not. They are not an energy storage device. They are an energy conversion device. So they convert an energy from one form, um, usually some sort of liquid or gaseous fuel, into another form, usually electricity. 
Um, so these fuel cells were solid oxide fuel cells and they converted natural gas into electricity in a highly efficient and very low pollution way. Um, and we sold them to big companies to park them outside their stores, their factories, their distribution centers and so forth, their data centers to make, you know, relatively clean electricity. So I you know, I got it like this, this can kind of, you know, this is almost like not associated with climate tech, right? But I had a job there and I did marketing and sales and finance and operations. Mm -hmm. I did all kinds. It was a startup. So it was like, you know, every month mm -hmm. or two, my job would completely change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I, I enjoyed it, learned a lot. Company, you know, did reasonably well and so forth. Um, and then I switched from there, though, to solar. Because at the time, I was starting to think, like, wow, we're still using a fossil fuel here. And I just didn't want to do that. Um, so I switched to a company called Sunrun. Um, I also got, right. You know, and that's, that's when I met you. And I yeah, yeah. just had, it's so great to put this in perspective. And I think, um, well, I'll come back to the fuel cell thing because there's this opportunity now in travel. We're all talking about green hydrogen. And I did all this reading on these pyrolytic. Anyway, I don't even know. I don't even know. But I um, I know that you know because fuel cells are at the heart of some of these next generation fuels, right? How we can convert substances into green fuel. Uh, yeah, they are. Um, or at least they, they are one potential component. Uh, and and we, myself and my colleagues at Breakthrough are big believers in hydrogen. We now have uh, three investments in hydrogen production companies, one uh, in so-called blue hydrogen, so mm -hmm. turning natural gas into hydrogen without releasing carbon, mm -hmm. and two in so-called green hydrogen, using electricity mm -hmm. to make hydrogen. And then we have one investment in a hydrogen um, fuel cell aviation powertrain company called Zero Avia. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's building powertrains to, to run aircraft on hydrogen. It's like, Matt, it gives me hope. It's like, this is what I feel when I have conversations with people like you. And then I go and I talk to, like I was yesterday talking with a a small business owner in Chile. His company is called Birds Chile. And he's an incredible environmentalist for decades. And I can share, like, this is happening. The future is now. It's just not evenly distributed, right? I mean, this stuff gives me immense hope that these technologies exist, that people are investing in them. Do you, do you feel that? Uh, I do. I do. You, you know, it's hard. I don't know how you find this, Christina, but it's hard to work in this every day mm. um, because I both see, you know, we've got a portfolio of God, like 60 companies now, mm. all of which we, we only invest in companies that we think can have half a gigaton of annual impact. Mm. Uh, they fully mm. scale. So that's, you know, half percent of emissions. So 60 mm -hmm. different companies that we've come to the conclusion, they could cut half a gigaton out. Um, so these are big, you know, these are big shots on goals, things that could be mm -hmm. massively influential. And so I do get really excited and optimistic about that. I, I do believe we can solve this. Um, we're really behind. Mm -hmm. you know, we've, the, this stuff is exciting and can make a big difference. But, you know, it's like the fifth inning and we're down 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we got to go out and start hitting some home runs quickly. Context. Okay. Um, wait. So 
Sunrun. We I talk about solar uh, often. We in so tomorrow's air is focused on direct air capture. Um, we may include other carbon removal technologies in time if I can generate demand and figure this out. Uh, but we point to solar all the time as this terrific example of a technology that seemed, you know, like it would never mainstream and yet it became more and more efficient and the cost went down. And so you, you know, to my way of thinking, you were part of, you're part of that story that I'm referencing all the time. You were part of the yeah. solar success. So what, yeah. what happened at Sunrun? Uh, so Sunrun was a residential solar deployment company. We, we financed and marketed and sold uh, and then built solar systems on people's homes. And I can, I, I used to write an annual holiday poem for the company. <laughs> you did not. Yeah, I did. Mad Eggers. Styled after 12 days of Christmas, uh, or, or sorry, the night before Christmas. Um, and uh, I can remember, I think it was in one of those poems where I was like adding up all of the solar deployed. And we felt like we were pretty big badasses at the time. And it basically covered Dolores Park in San Francisco, which is. <laughs> <laughs> But that is pretty bad. I'd love, do you, could you, I mean, maybe, maybe you can go on your computer while we're talking and you can find one of those. I, there's so much, um, you're a very low key kind of dude. So this is hilarious. I didn't know. I didn't know you were so funny. Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't that much solar really, but now, you know, gosh, I think now Sunrun, I was there for four years. So when I left, we had 55,000 customers. And I think these days they've got hundreds of thousands. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, they probably deploy Dolores Park every day, mm -hmm. uh, probably much more than that every day um, in terms of square footage of solar. Um, and the panels have gotten so much more energy dense since then. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's just fantastic the progress that's being made. And there's, there's a concept here that applies to solar. It applies to wind energy. It's applied to EVs. Um, some of your listeners may know this, but it's called the learning curve. Mm. Um, the learning it, it applies to any sort of uh, high or even medium tech. And the way the learning curve works um, is that for every worldwide doubling of production of something, of any mm. widget, costs fall by a fairly predictable amount usually 20%. Um, and that's proved out over hundreds and hundreds of things mm. that humanity has built. Mm. Um, this is one of the reasons why people say deployment is so important. Like the government needs to support deployment of new technologies because mm. when they do, the costs fall. Like, you know, we, we basically have not Sunrun to thank for cheap solar. We have Germany to thank for cheap solar. Mm -hmm. Because Germany funded in the late 90s, starting in the late 90s, early 2000s, through about 2015 or so, Germany built and scaled a massive solar government support program. And that dropped the cost of solar worldwide. Um, and, you know, now it's happening with EVs, where the, every time we produce an EV, we get closer to that next doubling of worldwide production, which will drop the cost of lithium ion batteries another 20%. I love it so much. So we talk about this in direct air capture, but I ha I didn't know this formula. And I know that this is part, so part of our um, conversation with DAC is we need to stimulate demand so that we can build capacity. And as we do that, the efficiency will get better and better and the cost will come down 
and we'll see all kinds of innovation as we as we support and now I'm using your word because you gave me some new words. As we support deployment, we can move ourselves down this learning curve, which is a proven thing and not just some vague sales stuff that I'm saying. Yeah. It's not a vague thing. It's, you know, tons and tons and tons of papers have been written and studied of, of various industries that this is what happens. You know, and sometimes it's only 15%, but some with semiconductors, it's been far more than 20%. Um, you know, it depends on the on the technology, um, but solar, EVs, and wind have all been uh, pretty close to the twenty percent. Wow, I'm getting such an education. You should teach a class. Do you teach classes, Matt? <laughs> I'm going to get you. We're going to popularize you. Okay, so Sunrun. Now I'm kind of moving linearly through your career, but I don't. I think there's some really fun stuff. I don't want to miss anything. So what happened after Sunrun? Uh, so Sunrun, uh, we made a big acquisition of one of our partners, REC, and, um, and the company was changing a lot. And I'd been there four years. It kind of felt time for me to go do something different. And at the time, I was talking to Tesla. So I went and joined Tesla, and I ran North American sales. Um, there's not a whole lot to say about this. I love Tesla. For I used to say to people that at the time, this was 2014, uh, the two institutions in the world that were doing the most to um, reduce climate change uh, were the Chinese government, who were supporting solar, and Tesla, who hmm. was figuring out EVs. Um, and so I loved that. And we, the products were super cool. I did not like the culture of Tesla. Um, and I don't want to talk about that too hmm. much publicly. There's There's actually been a lot written hmm. about the culture of Tesla, and you can find that yourself online, but it was not a good fit for me. It wasn't, uh, didn't, uh, didn't make me feel good about myself, mm. and my fellow humans to, to be there. So that was, I was mm. only there eight months. I remember seeing you on a street corner one hot Saturday and you had come from some sales event, some showroom. I remember walking away from that and I was like, that man is working very hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't, I think it's just um, fascinating the, like maybe one of the through lines of your career is definitely like, if you're not feeling it, you can't stick. You're not going right. to stick. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to enjoy the work and enjoy the people around me and feel, uh, and just feel good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, Matt, you have a meditation practice. I think I, I know that you're you are spiritual, but are you can you like break open any of that for us? Because I think this is alongside the farm boy. Um, this is relevant. It, you know, we're all holistic things. I think it's we're used to talking about our professional lives separate from everything, but that doesn't make any sense, does it? So yeah, I don't think it makes any sense either. Um, I do have a meditation practice. It, it's changed and shifted and gone away and come back um, over, I'd say, the last 15 years, which is um, about how long I've I've had some sort of, um, I'll call it a, a Buddhist practice. Mm. Um, these days, it's, it's um, I typically will do a 10-minute meditation a day um, mm. from uh, sometimes different ones, but um, from, uh, I use... 
material from a guy named Sam Harris. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love Sam Harris. <laughs> yeah, the waking up. Yes. Uh, and I also use material from a teacher named Alan Wallace, who is um, runs something called the the Santa Barbara um, Institute for Consciousness Studies. He was a translator for the Dalai Lama for years, and is a a very learned uh, Western um, Westerner who's, you know, an excellent meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use his material too. Um, and I also try to, I try to do morning pages every day. I try to write for 10 minutes every morning. Really? Uh, write morning pages. This is so good. This is so, um, oh my God, that feels, that feels harder to me than getting up at 4am and like trying to run 10 miles. <laughs> it, you know, it can be hard, but it's, oh God, it feels so good to just do it. Um, and I just set the timer for 10 minutes and, and sometimes I get distracted. Um, but that's part of the practice is just maintaining attention. Do you do um, it with a paper and pencil or no, with the computer? No. I do it. I do it in the computer. I do it in, um, in a note taking app called Rome Research. Mm. Um, I have found that I can't write. Like I actually don't, I can't write very well anymore. It's annoying. My writing is too slow. I, I can't I, keep up with my mind. I feel the same way too. And I also like to be able to like search and find that stuff quickly later, like some note mm. that I made or some thought that I had. And mm-hmm. so I just like to have it digitally. And there are definitely advantages to doing that uh, on on paper. So mm-hmm. you, know, you just have to choose. Um, but that's my practice. And, you know, and what I've been really been working with lately is just transitions and like trying mm-hmm. to notice if I pick up my phone or I get up mm. or I don't get up or I mm. close my email and open up some documents, work on some other task or mm. whatever it is, like in every transition, I try to be aware of what I'm doing and not mm. be in a dreamlike state, which is how I think mm. we live most of our lives. What are some of the benefits you see from that practice in what you're doing now, yeah. because you're, it's so heavy what you're into yeah. and you work with Bill Gates. You were on a phone call with Bill Gates. I'd be so <laughs> nervous. Do you open your mouth? What do no, you do? No, I don't think Bill would necessarily recognize me if I passed him on the street. I do. I do. He is the chairman of Breakthrough Energy Ventures, but we're, we're not exactly palling around. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I think, I think it's especially in the modern age, like meditation can give you a superpower because we are so driven by distraction, at least I am. Mm. Uh, I just struggle with attention and distraction and focusing on the things I want. And I heard a great analogy about this the other day um, that comes from observations of animals searching for food. And so if you think about a squirrel in a tree mm. and you know the squirrel is eating whatever food it can find in that tree, maybe it's acorns on an oak tree, and eventually it's eaten a lot of the acorns. There's still some, but it becomes hard enough to find an acorn that it makes more sense for the squirrel to run across the ground, which has some Mm -hmm. danger and takes some time and energy to go to another tree. Mm -hmm. And and it's actually pretty predictable about when animals will go do this. Hmm. Um, And if the trees are closer, they'll do it sooner. That makes sense, right? They'll go Mm -hmm. to the next, they can just leap to the next tree. Mm -hmm. They'll leap sooner. Um, even though there's still quite a few acorns left in the tree they started. Mm-hmm. And the analogy goes like now there is information is sort of like mm-hmm. the food for us. We crave it and we get a little bump of, mm-hmm. of uh, 
of neuro juice mm-hmm. anytime you find new information or make a you know a new social connection. Mm. Um, and so, and, and it's and the trees are packed together. They are everywhere. You are one click away from <laughs> who hearted your post on Twitter. You are one click oh, away from that, new information so on the New York Times. One click mm-hmm. away from this article. One click away from an email to your friend. Mm-hmm. One quick, one look at your phone from another text to some group text stream you're on. The truth right. we're, we're surrounded by right. other groups. Right. Uh, so anyway, I think like any practice that people can do in this day and age to maintain clear attention uninterrupted for significant amounts of time is essentially a superpower. Say more about Zero Avia and about blue carbon and green carbon. I mean, you don't have to talk technically about the company and the investment, but like sure. talk about that because I think in travel, um, we are very excited about these kinds of fuels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no one knows for sure how we're going to decarbonize aviation. It is one of the, one of the so-called big heart problem. And, uh, you know, one of the paths that gets talked about a lot is, is SAP, sustainable aviation fuels. Um, we don't have any investments there. We've looked a lot, but we haven't found anything that we like yet. Um, and it's hard. Uh, there is some SAP being used today. It's much more expensive than jet fuel. Um, the the other challenge with it is it's also going to be very capital intensive. To, to probably once you know some catalysts and pathways and so forth are developed, it's going to take billions and billions of dollars just to build a single plant. Mm. Uh, and a lot of times synthetic fuels and biofuels don't do as well as we want them to when we scale them up. Mm. Um, that's been the death of a lot of biofuels companies that were you know, funded 10 or 15 years ago is, is they might work at the lab scale or small pilot scale, and they just don't work as well as we, as we thought they would at, at uh, production scale. So, um, but we still think staff is probably a viable pathway and hopefully someday we'll get there. Other pathways we've been exploring, um, you know, to the point you asked, is hydrogen. Mm-hmm. We power aviation with hydrogen. So we've invested in this company, Zero Avia, that's flown a six-seat airplane a bunch of times now on hydrogen. Um, and, uh, and now they're working on a 19-seat airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting a lot of attention. So they've, they've raised uh, a lot of money and are, are likely to raise a lot more soon. Um, so they, they're well-funded and can, can really work on this stuff. And they've gotten grants from the UK government and mm-hmm. they're getting a lot of interest from big airlines, um, and, you know, both who are talking about placing deposits for orders and investing in the company and so forth. But, so but they're on the learning curve. The they're we're deploying. Well, they're not deploying yet. So they're still R&D because we're mm-hmm. not actually okay. selling anything yet. Um, but it's a long, hard path. Like, I, I don't want to make it sound like hydrogen for aviation is a sure thing. It's certainly not. Um, mm-hmm. uh, many, many challenges to solve in both the technology for the for the powertrains and then in building the infrastructure to create enough green hydrogen and distribute it, distribute it where we can actually build a large aviation system based on it. Like say more, like break that down because I think this is really important to, to even though it's so obvious, but it's like pipelines, what? right? Like how... 
where's this, it gets down to that like last mile thing, right? Yeah. Well, in this case, both the first mile and the last mile, it's hydrogen Mm -hmm. is very difficult to store and move. Um, Mm -hmm. Traditional pipelines probably won't work with high levels of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen will cause the metal to degrade and, uh, and fail. Hydrogen also, because it's just a single uh, proton, um, it can escape through um, almost any mechanism we try to store it in. So it just slowly dissipates. Um, And it has to be stored either liquefied or under extremely high pressure, which takes energy to make it liquid, uh, make it incredibly cold and high pressure to make it liquid, um, or even just compress it. it. And that also makes it dangerous, Um, not because it's explosive, which it is, but also because very high pressure can be dangerous. If a tank mm. uh, leaks or fails, um, you know, it basically takes off like it's a rocket engine. So there are a lot of issues with, with hydrogen infrastructure and distribution. That said, there are billions and billions of dollars going into solving these issues. And um, you know, in addition to aviation, we think industrial uses, manufacturing uses will probably be the best place for hydrogen. Um, and blue hydrogen, you asked about this. Mm-hmm. Blue hydrogen is creating hydrogen from natural gas, which is how it's created today. We already use a lot of hydrogen in in the economy, all in industrial uses. Yes, I read this. 70 million tons of hydrogen are produced every year. Yeah, and it's almost all produced from natural gas, and that splits natural gas. And in that splitting process, we release a lot of carbon. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could also um, break down CH4, the molecule of methane, which is natural gas. You could break that down and capture the CO2. And if you do that, that's called blue hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have one investment of a company that's trying to do that in a very innovative way. And then the other way to make zero carbon hydrogen, which have both blue and green are, are different flavors, is, uh, is to do it from clean electricity. So electricity generated from wind or solar, mm-hmm. and you run that through an electrolyzer, which mm-hmm. we, talked about, mm-hmm. we talked about fuel cells earlier. An electrolyzer is basically a fuel cell running backwards. Uh, and that converts the electricity into into hydrogen. Uh, and are it, uh, electrolyzers in short supply? Uh, like this is another. My I'm really superficial in any understanding. Yeah, but that stood out to me because I was like, "There's so many places where we need to capacity build." Yeah, it's not that they are in short supply. We've actually been making electrolyzers for. 100 years. Um, and, you know, y- you may have actually made one in a high school science class, you know, it's pretty easy to make a little home electrolyzer and, and uh, run current through water and watch bubbles form, which are mm. hydrogen. Um, uh, but the issue is, can we make them and, and there's actually been industrial and even today, mm-hmm. there are some industrial electrolyzer plants that are mm-hmm. producing electrolyzers and then running them to, to make hydrogen. The, mm-hmm. the issue is, can we make enough of them cheaply enough to actually mm-hmm. make hydrogen at a price point that's useful, which is, yeah. we think it's, you, you got to get to below two bucks a kilogram. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, electrolyzers make hydrogen at more like six bucks a kilogram. Wow. So we're a long way away. So we've got to do a bunch of technology development and then start producing them. And then we'll come down the learning curve. And, and we at BEV are pretty bullish that we can get to sub $2 a kilogram hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And is part of your, I imagine your job, Matt, is so bananas running around meeting innovators and creators. You must encounter just 
like madmen genius types. Yeah, we do. We we do. We've got a lot of brilliant, brilliant people um, that we work with. Um, you know, founders and CEOs in our portfolio mm-hmm. who's, who we've supported, and I'm incredibly grateful and humbled by their their passion and uh, and really their hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know the sacrifices they make to to bring these things to life. So cool. So Matt, I want to totally change gears and ask you, you're one of what's one of your best favorite most memorable travel experiences? Like backcountry uh, hiking or trip you took or because I know that the connection for me in this is like, well, sort of, you said this too, like when we go out into the world and experience the world, it deepens our appreciation for it. And that animates us to do all we can to build, build for tomorrow. So yeah. let, let's oh, hear about your travel. There's so many. So I think I've been to 47 U.S. states and like 35 countries or something like that. And uh I used to travel a lot. God, there's so many great ones. Just, you know, thinking about like in the backcountry or in the beautiful outdoors. I did a solo um, four day in Yosemite. It's the longest solo mm. I've ever done. Right before my first child was born in 20, I did that trip in the fall of 2014. And that was really special to just go hard out there by myself, nothing but me and the wilderness. Um, that was a special trip. And, um, and it was just, I was in, uh, um in northern yosemite it's a beautiful beautiful place um that was that was a great one i also went backpacking in anwar the arctic national wildlife yeah. Refuge. that uh, was an yeah. incredible trip wow seeing the huge herds of caribou mm-hmm. and uh the grizzly bears um and just you know unspoiled untouched raw nature is, mm-hmm. is pretty incredible and it's not a lot of places you can get that my dad had some memories of being, cause he was up there as a geologist and he had, I remember one story he told about sort of leaning down over the crest of a hill while this stampede of, of caribou just mm-hmm. went thundering by. It was like, he said that, you know, the earth was shaking. Like, yeah. That is wild. I've yeah. never seen that. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah, you know, there's another one maybe as a I used to go fishing a lot with my dad and we went on trips both when I was a little kid and then as a grown up we went on trips to Lake of the Woods or to the Boundary Waters on the Minnesota Canada border and mm. uh, you know just being out there and catching these beautiful fish walleye and northern pike and mm-hmm. you know just also the kind of raw nature nature meets man and then mm-hmm. you do what's called shore lunch so if you catch a bunch of fish um you bring a lunch but you hope to not eat it if you catch a bunch of fish you just go into shore at lunch and you fillet them and eat them uh-huh. Right there. Uh-huh. which is so you know i don't know it feels like far from what we do day to day now <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it feels so real to just catch it and eat it you didn't even take it home right Build a right. fire cook the damn cook and eat it. <laughs> We need to do real things. Well, Matt, I am so, so, I love this conversation because, you know, we've known each other, but I never took the time to ask you proper questions. So thank you for spending all this time. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure, Christina. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thanks for the questions. And 
hopefully my words and experience can provide some little bit of energy or guidance or whatever for your listeners to to go help uh help us in this quest to keep the earth a a garden planet you definitely (laughs) thanks matt 